welcome to the Reorg Research Weekly Podcast, where we bring you the latest top developments in the news of distressed debt and bankruptcies. I'm Catherine Doherty, reporting from Reorg's offices in New York City. This week, Toys R Us plans to liquidate, iHeart files for bankruptcy, Community Health hires advisors, plus our weekly updates on Puerto Rico and Venezuela. And on our deep dive segment, once again, we sit down with our senior distressed emerging market analyst to get an update on Steinoff and Venezuela and explore Oi, the Brazilian telecom company. It's Sunday, March 18th. After midnight on Wednesday, Toys R Us filed a motion to wind down its U.S. operations. In the motion, the debtors laid out a series of events which led to the wind-down decision, including holiday sales coming in well below worst-case projections, leading to EBITDA that was $250 million below budget. The debtors initially developed a plan to keep half their U.S. stores open, but faced with the prospects of a $50 million to $100 million cash burn per month just to keep those 400 stores open, the company and stakeholders determined that liquidating remaining store inventory would be the best way to maximize recoveries. The motion did state that Toys is not seeking to sell any of their other assets, such as real property or intellectual property at this time, and Propco 1's real property and lease value would be maximized by conducting a separate sale process for those assets at a later date. The Toys R Us name should live on, as the company told the court that it plans to pursue a going concern reorganization, as well as a sale process for its operations in Canada, which could include 200 of the best performing stores in the U.S., According to a press release by Toys, discussions continue on this potential transaction. As for the rest of the world assets, in a separate filing, Toys disclosed three separate term sheets for the debtors, the UCC, and the company's Taj note holders. The term sheets contemplate that the notes at Taj, the parent company of Toys International entities, would receive 97% of equity in reorganized Taj. According to the cleansing docs, those entities, including Europe, Australia, Japan, China, and Southeast Asia, are projected to generate near $150 million of EBITDA and grow sales by a few percent in 2018. The projections exclude the UK, which entered administration in late February and announced this past week that those stores would close. The U.S. wind-down motion stated that the debtors are attempting to mitigate the negative impact the U.S. wind-down could have on the international operations. At long last, iHeartMedia filed for bankruptcy early on Thursday morning. After it extended forbearance agreements with consenting creditors by 24 hours twice over the course of the week, the broadcaster went to bankruptcy court in the Southern District of Texas with an agreement in principle with holders of more than $10 billion of its debt. However, at the time of the filing, the company's draft restructuring support agreement had not been executed. And sources told Reorg that the company was seeking to reach the consent thresholds necessary to execute the RSA. 
Consistent with prior term sheets, the RSA hands $5.5 billion of new secured debt and 94% of reorganized equity to term loan and PGN claims, with a greater share going to the term loan and 2019 PGN notes. $200 million of new secured debt and 5% of the equity would go to the 14% and legacy note holders and the remaining 1% to pre-petition equity holders. At iHeart's first day hearing, the company indicated that it had surpassed the senior creditor 67% threshold that it needed. And on Friday, sources told Reorg that iHeart received signature pages from at least 67% of junior creditors, meeting the required consent threshold from those creditors for the execution of the company's restructuring support agreement. A legacy noteholder group did not support the restructuring that was proposed, and at the first day hearing, the group's counsel, Whitencase, noted that its clients intend to file an adversary proceeding in the near term. According to the first day declaration, that group, which holds about 190 million of legacy notes, had participated in pre-petition negotiations. The debtors expect that the legacy noteholder group will take actions in the near term with respect to their, quote, alleged entitlement of the legacy notes to liens on certain of the debtors' assets. Hospital operator Community Health is working with Lazard to evaluate its restructuring options, Reorg reported early this week. The company publicly disclosed in a lender presentation two days later that Lazard, as well as Citigroup, Credit Suisse, and J.P. Morgan are working as financial advisors. The company's presentation also provides details of the refinancing options community is currently considering to deal with over $4.7 billion of debt that comes due in 2019 and 2020. The hospital operator is proposing an amendment to its term loan that would increase junior secured debt capacity, followed by an exchange of its 2019 and 2020 senior notes for new, longer-dated second lien notes to occur later this month and in April, respectively. Potential terms of the exchange were not disclosed, nor were pricing or duration of the contemplated new second lien notes. According to recent public disclosures, Franklin, across its funds, owns over 60% of community's 2019 senior notes and over 50% of the 7.125% senior notes as of January 31st. Community says in the presentation that after the amendment and exchange of its debt is completed, it will seek to extend or refinance $1 billion of its term loan G. Reorg also reported earlier in the week that community's term loan lenders have begun organizing. Lawyers from Davis Polk held an initial call with certain term loan G and H lenders as an early precautionary step to better coordinate and plan for potential restructuring options that the company could take, sources told Reorg. The group, which consists of over a dozen term loan lenders, began to organize around the time the company's amendment to its credit facility was first announced. And on the island of Puerto Rico, on Monday, PREPA filed updated reporting materials related to the $300 million loan from the Commonwealth. 
Prepa continues to project the segregated account running out of cash by the first week in April. However, this current report now projects the operating account and reserve fund will be $30 million higher by the end of May than the February 28th report projected. In his second State of the Commonwealth Address, Governor Ricardo Rosseo announced the filing of legislation to execute a proposed privatization of the Puerto Rico Electric Power Authority and accompanying energy reform and new labor reform initiatives. During his more than two-hour address, Rosayo toted proposed tax health and education reforms and discussed new public safety initiatives. The proposed electric system transformation law was registered at the Capitol on Tuesday. Rosayo said the bill is the first step in a four-phase process for PREPA privatization. The second phase involves work on PREPA's fiscal plan and integrated resource plan. A third phase would be centered on structuring the privatization process, and the fourth phase, targeted for this summer, would be to send out requests for proposals, he said. And in the Venezuela situation, Reorg learned that the government missed an 185 million coupon payment, which was due Thursday on the country's 9. 25% sovereign bonds of 2027. The regime has now accumulated over 600 million in due and unpaid interest under a 30-day grace period on sovereign and PDVSA debt. For more on Venezuela, our director of credit research, Mark Fisher, sat down with senior distressed analyst, Kyle Owusu. But first, our top red stories of the week were, one, Community Health taps Lazard as restructuring advisor. Term loan lenders organize in anticipation of future negotiations. Two, Toys R Us pointing to well below worst case holiday sales seeks to liquidate all 735 U.S. stores, establish sale procedures for Canadian equity transaction. And three, After filing for Chapter 11, iHeart remains focused on achieving consent thresholds necessary to execute RSA. And now, I'll pass it over to Jim for a preview of what's to come in the week ahead. Thank you, Catherine, and greetings from the Gulf Coast. This week, we'll be monitoring developments in Claire stores, as well as Southeastern Grocers, which late last week entered an RSA with note holders and its equity sponsor, and said it would file for Chapter 11 in Delaware by the end of the month. Southeastern is the owner of Bilo, among other fine grocers in this part of the world, and I can recommend their fried chicken, at least what they make at the store in my hometown of Statesboro, Georgia. Also on our radar for this week, Monday, March 19th, the auction for the debtor's main assets in Mossy and Gasolfi, said asset being a big old chemical plant down the road from me in Corpus Christi, Texas. We also have a confirmation hearing for Aero Postal, or is that Aero Postal? I've never been sure about that. And it's also the early tender deadline for Frontier Communications, which is buying back a bunch of its notes with maturities from 2020 through 2023. And please see our website for the coupons, QSIPs, ISINs, and the complete terms. Tuesday, March 20th, objections to the DIP amendment motion in Westinghouse. And more DIP action on Wednesday, March 21st, with final DIP objections due for Apvion and objection deadline for the plan and DS and the Fieldwood Energy cases. 
Thursday, March 22nd, we have the deadline objections to the amended plan for Brightburn, most certainly a set of cases that keeps on giving. And just as the sun rises in the east and sets in the west, Thursday is followed by Friday. And this Friday, March 23rd, is the early tender date for Guitar Center's exchange offer for its 9 and 5 8 2020 notes. And that's all from me. Thanks for tuning in, and make sure you look at our week ahead, released every Monday at 6.15 a.m. or 7.15 a.m. if you're in Houston. Back to you, Catherine. Thanks, Jim. As always, we'll be on the lookout for those developments in the coming days. And now, we'll turn to our Director of Credit Research, Mark Fisher, who sat down with Senior Distressed Emerging Market Analyst, Kyle Owusu, who gives us an update on Steinoff and Venezuela, as well as Oi, the Brazilian telecom company. Thanks, Catherine. So I'm here again with Kyle Owusu, Senior Distressed Analyst covering the emerging markets. And again, like last time, we're going to talk about different credits from around the world, uh, hoping to update on a couple of situations that we discussed the last time, as well as introduce a, a new company uh, for, for our subscribers. So first, I uh, wanted to go back to Steinhoff, uh, which we discussed last time. Uh, as you recall, Steinhoff is a... Um, a global conglomerate, and wanted to update uh, people on what, uh, what what's new in the situation. Um, as we discussed the last time, Steinhoff has been accused of some accounting irregularities, and now uh, investors that, that are involved in the situation are trying to figure out, one, the extent of those irregularities, and also where the pockets of value are. Uh, so to continue on from our conversation, the last time um, when we talked Talked about uh, the different pockets of value, uh, you know, for instance, the the U.S. assets versus the South African assets, and then of course the European assets, where um, the accounting irregularities are, are focused on. Um, let's let let let's dive into you know a, a couple of those and uh, see how uh, you know some of the, the the bonds here might extract value. So Kyle, the the, the latest um, revelation in in the case was um, the discovery of this intercompany claim. Uh, so if you could please update people on uh, what uh, what what was found. Yeah, thanks, Mark. Thanks for having me. So the reason that the bonds uh, jumped, um, the the 2021 and 2022 convertibles jumped roughly 10 points um, around two weeks ago, it was revealed, or the company basically confirmed the existence of a 1.7 billion euro intercompany loan that is due to Steinhoff International Holdings Proprietary Limited from Steinhoff Investment Holdings, and the significance of that is Steinhoff International Holdings Limited acts as a guarantor for the convertible notes that were issued by Steinhoff Finance, so for the 2021 and 2022 convertible notes. And so essentially, the thesis is that you've got uh, $1.7 billion um, of, of covered collateral um, that is going to presumably to the benefit of roughly 1.6 billion of convertible claims. Now, the intercompany loan um, has always been been shown on the on the financials of, of Steinhoff Investment Holdings, but the fact that the company came out and confirmed it essentially shot the bonds up. Great, and, and we also learned a little bit more about the individual operations. Uh, the company recently re reported their earnings. Uh, you know, so, so what did we find out? What's what's going well, and what isn't? 
Sure. So to start with what's going well, and this also, I think, plays into the thesis regarding value coming from the African business to the convertible bonds, uh, the, the the business that's growing um, is is the African business. And so revenue at, at, at Steinhoff Africa Retail rose uh, 8%. Um, the, the Pep and Ackerman's brands reported 1.9% like-for-like growth. Um, the, the automotive business saw a like-for-like revenue increasing by 10%. Um, furniture, consumer electronics, and and appliances brands grew 7.4% on a like-for-like basis. Um, I mean, if you contrast that with the European household goods business, for example, at Conferama, like-for-like sales fell 1%. Um, and I think that the other big revelation was on, on Mattress Firm. So, Mattress Firm, um, in terms of what went wrong, Mattress Firm reported like-for-likes down 10%. Um, and a lot of that is is, is not only due to um, what's been going on um, in, in the news that we're all aware of and how that's disrupted the business, but you know, there, there's Mattress Firm um, has been essentially rebranding. Um, and right now, roughly 40% of the store estate has been rebranded. Um, so, sort of moving away from the legacy store banners of, of Sleepies and Sleep Train, um, but the 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 business overall is still is still pressured, um, and the company has said that they they need to continue to shore up liquidity there, and they need to continue to close stores, and so that's sort of the the the, the troubled spot, uh, so to speak. And that's you know, it's interesting listening to you talk about you know how all of these different businesses are moving in in different uh, directions. I mean that's what I find so fascinating about this company. There's just so many different businesses that are under um, the uh, the Steinhoff umbrella here. Um, you know what the company has been doing lately is as you've noted uh, is that they've been selling some of these assets. Um, you know if you could update us on uh, you know there's a KAP stake um, I believe that they recently sold. If you could update that uh, um, everybody on what the company's been doing to raise uh, cash through asset sales. Yeah, so the the company um, on on March thirteenth placed four hundred fifty million shares in in Cap Industrial Holding Limited at a price of uh, eight fifteen rand per share and raised roughly two hundred fifty million euros of, of gross proceeds. Um, the book was was multiple times oversubscribed and 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 so yeah, I think that that you know the the company continues to look for avenues or explore avenues to raise cash um, and and will probably. Continue to do so. Um, there are certainly there's certainly been rumors about uh, potential IPOs of, of some of the other businesses. Whether or not that happens remains to be seen. But yes, you're right. I mean, this is a situation where there are um, you know all, all sorts of little pockets of value that that could potentially be monetized uh, down the line. Great, thanks. And now let's let's move on to a different situation. Uh, Venezuela is one that we had talked about uh, the last time in depth, um, and you also did a standalone podcast as well, which is on our um, podcast page on it. Uh, Want to update uh, uh, listeners to um, you know to that situation as as well. The last time we spoke about uh, you know the two main entities, Petavesa and uh, Venezuela, uh, you know itself, and the 
the question people have, of course, is um, you know where who owns the oil, uh, right? Uh, Petavesa is the um, you know the operating company um, is obviously a significant part of Venezuela's GDP, but then Venezuela itself seems like they have some uh, ability to uh, to take that um, to take that oil o- away from, or at least people fear that they have the ability to take that oil away from uh, Petavesa. So. Yeah, sure, and I, th- I think it's important to to sort of emphasize, and and you you touched on this um, that that it, it really is in terms of the way people are thinking about it, um, it's a risk. Uh, you know, there's no short, there's no real short thing or no no short answer here, but um, it's definitely a risk that people are thinking about, and the reason um, that that people are sort of thinking about this risk is that in um, all of the Venezuela and PDVSA bond documents. It, it, it specifically stated that all hydrocarbon reserves in Venezuela are owned by Venezuela and not by us, us being PDVSA. Um, every activity relating to the exploration and exploitation of hydrocarbons and their derivatives is reserved to the government of Venezuela. And what is also significant is there is a permitted liens um, clause in in the PDVSA uh, bond docs um, that allows for liens in favor of the Venezuelan government or any agency or instrumentality thereof to secure payments under any agreement entered into between such entities and the issuer or a subsidiary of the issuer. And so all that is to say that you know it, it's it's a risk. It's something that people are thinking about whether or not you know the government steps in and does anything, I think is, is anyone's guess, but it's certainly um, a, a topic of discussion. Now, of course, another topic of discussion is um, the political situation. Uh, there's um, the elections uh, were, were were pushed back uh, to May, um, as as you've uh, discussed before. Um, now, with 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 the election, uh, you know, going on um, for. For people involved in this situation, um, you know, what should they be thinking about as uh, the different parties here uh, fight for control, uh, particularly as it relates to um, uh, rights of PDVSA versus Venezuela, uh, in particular with the with with, with the oil. Um, you know, which party would you say is 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 perhaps more PDVSA versus Venezuela friendly? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think that right now um, a lot of attention is is focused on uh, Henry Falcone, who has announced that he is going to run uh, against Maduro um, during the the May twentieth elections. Um, on the one hand, you know Henry Falcone has said that you know he he Henry Falcone is working with uh, or is being advised by, I should say. Um, Francisco Rodriguez, um, who is the chief economist or was the chief economist at Torino Capital, which is a, a well-known broker-dealer, um, and Rodriguez uh, has has come out and suggested um, that the the Bolivar be scrapped um, for the U.S. dollar to try and fix uh, inflation. Um, you know, the, the both uh, Falcone and Rodriguez have been pretty vocal about the need um, to work with the IMF. Falcone has said that. Um, there, there needs to be roughly 15 billion to 20 billion a year uh, of investments uh, from abroad um, to sort of make the oil sector a little more competitive again. And, and so, I think that the market uh, is looking at Henry Falcone as, as certainly a pro-market candidate. Um, 
Now, on the other hand, um, the a lot of people uh, are, are sort of pointing out that that Henry Falcone could be playing both sides here, um, and so there there is some speculation about what uh, his actual angle is, whether or not uh, he is going to come in and sort of pursue these reforms that he's talking about. Um, but for now, I think that you know, and you've seen the movement in the bonds. Um, it's been been certainly been viewed as an incremental positive. Um, that, that Henry Falcone has stepped into the ring here. Great, thanks. And um, uh, just staying with Petavesa uh, and how other ways they could potentially uh, the bonds could potentially extract value. Uh, Petavesa also indirectly owns Sicko um, Petroleum Corporation, uh, which has um, a, a, a number of U.S., uh, large U.S. Um, ref- refineries. Um, could you just talk about the relationship uh, between Petavesa and Sicko, uh, and in particular, are there any bonds uh, that, that benefit more or less from that relationship? Sure. So, Petavesa owns uh, a subsidiary called PDV Holding, and PDV Holding owns uh, Sitco Holding Incorporated, uh, which owns the the Sitco refineries. Uh, PDV Holding um, has granted a lien on roughly 50% of the stock in Sitco Holding to the Petavesa uh, 8.5% 2020 holders. Um, you know, Sitco. Sitco has the their three refinery assets in Lake Charles, Louisiana, Corpus Christi, Texas, and Lamont, Illinois. Um, the the Sitco refining refining capacity um, represented roughly 29% of Venezuela's total refining capacity in uh, 2016, and so. I mean, I think that it's it, needless to say, uh, it is a, a very valuable asset to Venezuela, um, and so again, there's. I think I touched on this before, but there is um, a, an argument out there in the market that because the asset is so valuable, and because bondholders do have a lien on that equity, uh, Maduro um, and or his administration or his advisors would not want to risk putting that asset into play, and so will. Um, Try to keep continue making uh, coupon payments on on the Petabessa end. Now, um, obviously, the the bonds are now trading dirty, um, but at the same time, um, some people are there. There are rumors that that coupon payments are being made, albeit very slowly. Um, and so that that I think that that that's also an angle that that people um, are paying attention to as well. Great, thanks. Um, now let's move on to a new situation, one that we didn't talk about the last time, and um, you know that's Oi, the uh, Brazilian telecommunications company. Uh, now, so Oi had uh, just emerged from bankruptcy, um, and I was hoping, Kyle, that you could you know first give a little uh, you know description about um, you know the, the company for those unfamiliar um, with it. Uh, talk about the um, the bankruptcy itself. Um, you know, curious why um, it, it took uh, two years uh, for the company to emerge. Yeah, sure. So Oi filed um, for for RJ uh, in June of 2016. Um, RJ is essentially the Brazil Brazil's equivalent of Chapter 11. So in Brazil, um, there's an extrajudicial restructuring, uh, which is essentially an out of court scheme 
and there's a judi- there's a judicial restructuring, which is the RJ. Oi filed for RJ in June of 2016. Shortly thereafter, um, the company filed to um, have its RJ recognized um, under under Chapter 15 of of the U.S. Bankruptcy Code. Um, in July of 2016, a group of Oi creditors asked for um, a Dutch trustee to be appointed um, related to uh, its Oi co-op. Um, entity, which I will, which I will touch upon, um, but you know, essentially, Oi, Oi is one of the largest telecom companies in Brazil. Um, it filed with roughly sixty-five billion of of reais of claims, so around twenty billion USD. Um, and then, in terms of why th- this took so long and why it was so contentious, I think a lot of that has to do with um, the 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 way uh, restructurings play out in Brazil. And so, there are, there are four key differences to touch upon. One is that oftentimes equity holders have a lot of uh, influence um, in terms of driving the plan. Um, and and part of part of the reason for that is because there is no um, absolute priority rule that is guiding negotiations. Another another um, point to touch upon is that um, under under RJ, the debtor uh, is the only one throughout the life of of the the um, the throughout the course of the bankruptcy that can propose a plan to be voted on. Um, the the third point to touch upon is that um, the substantive consolidation rules um, are very different um, in in Brazil versus the U.S. So where it, where in the U.S. it's it's pretty difficult um, for for substantive consolidation to to happen. It's 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 a lot more rare in Brazil. It's a little more common, and so uh, you had arguments from from some bondholders that claims against individual boxes were being ignored because everything was essentially aggregated into one. Um, and so that, that I think that's the reason why um, the, the, the proceedings took so long and, and were so contentious, aside from the fact that you had um, a, diver, a diverse group of creditors, including um, Anatel, uh, the Brazilian regulator, which had a roughly uh, 11 billion reais claim. Okay, great. So now let's shift back to to the business itself. So as you know, as as former bondholders, um, you know, through through emergence, um, will now own seventy five percent of the equity of the company. Uh, what um, what essentially are they, they they getting here? You know, is is the uh, the largest telecom operator in um, in in Brazil. But if you could tell us about uh, the dynamics that are going on in the industry, that would be great. Yeah, sure. So there's actually there, you know, there's there's basically um, four large operators in Brazil. Um, there's Oi, Vivo, Claro, and uh, TIM. Um, now, in terms of in terms of market share, I mean, Vivo is really the the big player there. Um, they've got, or as of September 2017 at least, Vivo's market share in the mobile market and the fixed market was 31% um, and 35% respectively, where Oi's was roughly 17% and uh, 33%. And so I think that there's there's two trends um, to to sort of highlight, or a few trends actually to sort of highlight in the space. Um, one is the the focus um, on the broadband market. Um, and so what's interesting is that you actually saw um, Directv's Latin American unit file 
um, for their IPO. And what they pointed out in the presentation that I found fascinating was that the the median uh, broadband penetration rate for France, Germany, UK, and the US um, is 86%. Um, and now, if you compare that with Brazil, it's roughly 33%. And so, obviously, they see that market as a, as a huge opportunity. Um, and OI does as well. Um, you know, you you see you saw it in OI's um, in the Ernst and Young report um, that that Ernst and Young put together uh, to prove the feasibility of OI's plan. Um, you know, OI projects their broadband revenue and number of users growing um, pretty substantially uh, from 2018 to 2027. If you contrast that. With with what OI shows for mo- the mobile market, um, OI does not really see uh, mobile growing by that much, um, and that that's because that market is very well penetrated. And so that brings me to the next sort of theme to discuss, um, and that's you know how do you grow the mobile revenues um, when your user base is, is pretty much staying stagnant? Um, and OI, um, like everyone else, or sorry, every every other telecom operator out there. Um, is is trying to push uh, a bundling, um, so selling uh, not just mobile but pay TV and broadband, um, and then B uh, converting um, existing users over from 2G to 3G and 4G, and maybe even from 4G to 5G, um, and really rel- pushing um, data, and that's expected to drive um, average revenue per user. Um, and so those are two dynamics that are going on in the industry, and uh, obviously you've got the the big four operators that are all um, looking to do to make similar moves. So expand in broadband, uh, grow ARPU, um, and so uh, you know the the other three have have been spending. Um, a lot of capex over over the years, while OI has essentially been been in bankruptcy, and so now OI really has some catching up to do, and that's part of the reason. Actually, it's probably the main reason why you needed this four billion raise capital increase, um, and so now OI really has to spend that catch up capex um, to get to a level where it can effectively compete again with its with its uh, with its uh, co- with the competition. If you could just give us a little bit of a, uh, the landscape of you know how the the four companies compete. Against Against each other, um, are there specific municipalities where OI is the uh, the incumbent, um, or are they essentially um, fighting uh, from a smaller share in, in, in most of their regions? Well, I think in terms of uh, you know how they compete against each other, um, you know within the mobile market, uh, it was pretty well known that OI. Um, is heavily exposed uh, to prepaid uh, prepaid users versus postpaid, um, meaning that a lot of OI's subscription base or subscriber base um, is users that that will prepay for minutes on their telephone and then recharge um, if they need to keep using the phone. Um, now, obviously, that 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 sort of model or those users are a little more price sensitive. And what happened during the recession in Brazil is that a lot of those users were not recharging. And so it left OI a bit more exposed um, relative to to its other competitors. Um, one point that has been mentioned to me also is that TIM um, in, in, in the broadband space uh, you know, really doesn't have uh, a presence compared with OI, Vivo, and Claro. Um, and we, as I've already mentioned, you know, broadband um, is, is a very 
attractive or seen as a very attractive growth area. Um, and so that that's definitely a dynamic to watch. Um, you know, you saw Elliot um, has has sort of had been involved at, at Telecom Italia, which owns TIM. Um, there's been some speculation about whether or not Elliot will merge TIM and OI. Um, now, to be clear, uh, Elliot has said that they they do not intend to do that. Um, but I think that it's 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 certainly a dynamic that the market is watching, given OI's presence in the broadband market and uh, TIM's lack of presence. Great. So, so essentially, to sum it up, um, you've got a company that uh, merged with a cleaned-up balance sheet, um, and uh, will soon have capital to spend in a uh, potentially um, growing uh, market, both from a low penetration point and um, you know just in terms of adding adding services. So, um, uh, it's been really helpful. Um, great. Thank you, Kyle. Uh, really appreciate it, and um, I look forward to to the next time. Great. Sounds good. Thanks a lot, Mark. That's all for this week. As a reminder, you can access all Reorg Research podcasts on our media page. Or, if you're not a subscriber, you can access them on iTunes and SoundCloud. I'm Catherine Doherty. Join us next time on Reorg's weekly podcast.